Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. A warm welcome to those of you joining us for the latest episode of Beyond Markets. My name is Bernadette Andeco, and I'm an investment writer at Julius Baer. I'm delighted to be joined today by our Head of Research, Christian Gattaca, and our Deputy Head of Research in Asia, Kelly Cha. Hello to you both. Hello, Bernadette. Hello, Bernadette. Thank you for joining me. Well, we're here today to cover a big topic, our mid-year market outlook. So that's our thoughts on the current market environment, what's likely for the rest of the year in terms of growth and inflation outlooks, and of course, what our analysts' views are on both equities and fixed income. Christian, perhaps I could start by asking you the first question. I know this is all about the market outlook, but it feels like we should set the stage here a little bit by looking at what's already played out so far in 2023. This was the year that we labelled as the great cool-down, reflecting our expectations for both inflation and interest rates. They haven't cooled quite as rapidly as we expected, have they? Yes, indeed. Inflation has proved stickier than expected, but uh, so has economic momentum. Or in other words, um, higher economic activity has resulted in a slower fall in inflation rate. What's really changed, though, is our expectations for 2024. And that's because of central banks tightening monetary supply by more than we hoped for at the beginning of the year. In light of that, what are we expecting for growth and inflation going forwards? Uh, Will they slow more? Given the aggressive Fed hike trajectory, the US economy is most affected by this slowdown. In terms of numbers, this means uh, that we expect the US inflation rate to slow down to 4% by year-end and US growth to slow down to slightly below 2%. For 2024, and this is what we're discounting now or looking at because this will move the market as of the second half of 2023, For 2024, we see inflation slowing even further to slightly above 2% and growth to a mere 0.3% by year in 2024. So rates uh, are biting and this has an impact and will continue to do so. On a positive note, divergences in the global economy could remain in place for the foreseeable future, particularly when it comes to growth. This means that the U.S. will likely cool off more than other countries, having been the growth stronghold for the last two years. Does this mean, therefore, that uh, the U.S. is likely to enter a recession? Well, the odds are pretty uh, open. Uh, So if you run our bond uh, models there, you know, um, they spit out the probability of 50%. So this is like flipping coin for a recession in the next 12 months. But Even if it were to happen, if a recession were to happen in the uh, United States, it should be a mild one. And the reason for that is the consumer. You know, consumer is two-thirds of the uh, economy and modern economies in the U.S. as well. And we see extreme strength and solidity with private households. So they're conservatively financed and have still a large share of cash, meaning they can actually weather higher rates. And on top, the divergence between the U.S., China and Europe also helps uh, lower the risk of a global recession. So possibly a US recession, but we don't think this turned into a global one. We've covered our outlook now for inflation and growth. Turning to currencies, and especially the US dollar, which we've been predicting to weaken in 2023, there's been a lot of talk about de-dollarization this year. And I believe we think it's actually more a case of diversification, Kelly. Perhaps you can explain the difference to me, please. 
Thanks for asking the question, Bernadette. I mean, de-dollarization basically refers to the idea of a long-term decline of the US dollar as a reserve currency, which we simply don't believe is the case now. Data we have certainly doesn't support this case. The dollar was about 65% of central bank reserves about 20 years ago. Today, just below 60%, and we think it's more diversification rather than a demise. The diversification can also be seen with record high gold buying by some of the world's central banks, especially from the emerging markets. So does that mean, therefore, that the decline in the US dollar is over, Kelly, or, or do we see more weakness? And I guess if we do, which currencies would you see benefiting? Well, to put things in context, from the peak in November 2022, we think we're about two-thirds of the downside is already behind us. But that means there still could be another third left to go. The natural beneficiaries are obviously the Swiss franc and the Japanese yen. Swiss franc because it will benefit on muted risk appetite as there is a US-driven cool down in the economy. The yen is also likely to be supported by upcoming policy shifts by the Bank of Japan over the medium term. Technically, there's actually also a pretty good case for high-yielding emerging market currencies to benefit due to the yield advantage and the prospect of some capital coming out of the US. Turning to how we can invest going forwards, Christian, what are the opportunities that you would want to highlight to investors now? Well, Bernadette, the year of the cooldown favors being fully invested with a quality focus. Um, cash is attractive given the, the rates right now, but it's only a stepping stone or a tactical buffer in our view. The woes in the banking sector in the first half uh, this year saw investors rotate back into defensive names. Although we think the crisis of confidence in the banking sector is and will remain contained, we keep the quality defensive tilt in place. Additional credit tightening in the second half of this year, especially in the US, means uh, cyclical names remain unattractive. We look for defensive industry leaders across various sectors. Additionally, uh, we would look to take positions in quality growth stocks at attractive valuations. These are overproportionately represented in the information technology and communication sectors. Kelly, what would you be looking at from an emerging markets standpoint? Here, I think for emerging markets, it's really important to focus on long-term winners. Sadly, emerging markets have performed pretty badly this year because of weak earnings and continued downward revisions have obviously raised concerns for this asset class. Yet, uh, we see room for EM assets to possibly catch up in the second half of 2023, primarily aided by weaker dollar and policy easing. China's faltering recovery looks like it really requires the central government to stimulate it again. So in terms of our investment stance, we are neutral in emerging market equities relative to the developed markets, but we do see pockets of opportunity here in Asia. We still remain overweight Southeast Asia because generally they're quite defensive. They've got supportive GDP as well as EPS growth still growing in that aspect, and their balance sheets are definitely pretty stable. We also overweight India on the longer term because they've got pretty favorable economic policies and their systematic investment program really does help the upside for local stocks. For China, 
this is the unfortunate part, the positive momentum following the reopening has waned quite sharply. In fact, after a sharp slowdown in April, China's economy continued to soften in May. Both the property and the industrial sector have been losing steam pretty fast. The service sector, while remaining, you know, sort of like a bright spot, has also slowed meaningfully. Policy support is now the only game changer. Therefore, we retain our neutral rating and would recommend a stock picking strategy for China. Okay, and sticking with Asia, we mentioned earlier that the Japanese yen is set to benefit from the weakening dollar this year. Stock markets there have been having something of a resurgence too. Uh, What's our view there, Kelly? Yes, um, to put things in context, Japan is still the third largest economy in the world, and it also has the third largest financial market. So valuations of Japanese stocks actually remain pretty attractive at current levels versus its developed market peers. The market is still enjoying pretty uh, accommodative policy from the BOJ, and activism is on the rise. So investors could consider Japanese stocks with quality and growth characteristics. These include those with significant market share in automation and the semiconductor industry. Okay, thanks for that. And moving over to our next generation topics, I see that our focus now is on shifting lifestyles and artificial intelligence. Perhaps you could explain the rationales there. When it comes to shifting lifestyles, the sub-themes here are definitely more resilient in case of any intensifying cyclical challenges. This is because, firstly, it has lower sensitivity to global equity markets. And secondly, valuations are not really that excessive, despite these themes having exposure to long-term structural growth. So some of these long-term outlooks for sub-themes include digital health, extended longevity, and genomics, they all still remain pretty compelling. There have also been recent breakthroughs in age-related diseases, which underpin a positive view, such as Alzheimer's and diabetes. As for artificial intelligence, we have to talk about that because it's the rage all now. We think the race has only just begun. One of our long-standing convictions is that AI will become a general purpose technology, which means that it's going to be applied across many sectors and industries. So with large language models, the rate of innovation in AI is going to keep accelerating. So we're going to be positive on long-term potential for software, cloud computing providers, and semiconductor companies. Okay, so we've talked at length about equities now. Um, It's time to look at fixed income, Christian. I guess we should start with what we like now and why we like it. Yes, indeed. Uh, The good news, Bernadette, is that uh, rates and yields are generous to anything uh, investors have seen in the past 10 years. So therefore, our emphasis is in fixed income to stick with quality and lock in decent real yields as long as they are positive. And to this end, we favor long-dated investment-grade quality bonds. This allows investors to lock in yields for longer. Because the closer we come to the end of the rate hiking cycle, the more imminent reinvestment risks are going to be. Buying longer dated bond limits the risk of being flush with cash from bonds maturing too soon at a time when the reinvestment opportunity won't offer the same rewards. 
Apart from the longer dated investment grade quality bonds, we also see opportunities in shorter dated ones, but there we would go into some lower quality bonds and we're talking here of triple B, so still investment grade. Uh, yields there are elevated as well and there's on top of that some, some additional credit spread investors can uh, benefit from and they don't take too much of, of the credit risk. So higher coupons move the cash inflows forwards and there's even room for ratings improvements in the peripheral European sovereigns. And this makes them also attractive. And finally, we would allocate uh, the whole credit risk budget. So not the duration, but the credit risk budget to the emerging market bonds denominated in hard currencies. Emerging market bonds historically perform well in periods of stable or falling US interest rates and uh, China's economy is set to accelerate from 3% in 2022 to above 5% in 2023. So our preference is for Asian high-grade bonds and Middle Eastern issuers. I guess we ought to turn to what we don't like anymore, which is the high-yield bonds. Could you give us an insight into why the fixed income team have downgraded this segment to underweight? Yeah, I mean, our first case or our main case is, you know, if quality yields so generously and so much at this stage, so why bother going into low quality? So that's the idea behind it. And there are, of course, uh, multiple layers of concerns. So especially as the Fed seems to be uh, successful in, in fighting this uh, stubbornly sticky inflation and financial conditions, have tightened considerably. If you go into these high-yield companies or into this high-yield segment, actually you'll find the most unprofitable and, and financially most stretched and unstable companies there. And of course, by definition, they experience the most stress. So higher credit costs and shorter maturities mean increasing refinancing costs for those companies and they actually translate there quicker into actual costs. So current credit spreads in our view do not reflect the real risks now, so we prefer to avoid this segment. Now, when it comes to commodities, Kelly, I know that we hold a neutral stance, but I believe that we think there might be an opportunity in copper this year. Could you tell us a bit more there, please? Most definitely. Commodity prices have fallen in 2023, and our position is that we are not entering another commodity super cycle, and it really does seem to be being played out. We do, however, see copper riding its own supercycle currently underway in battery metals. This has driven by the ongoing energy transition. For example, electric vehicles need three to four times more copper than its conventional peers. And penetration of EVs remain pretty low. So we see copper demand is set to grow in the coming decades. We should also note that there is an underinvestment in the physical copper mines themselves. This should see a slowdown in supply growth from 2025, about two years' time, which should put upward pressure on prices, pushing them back above $10,000 per tonne. Thanks for that, Kelly. I think that brings us to the end of the mid-year 2023 market outlook. Unless, of course, there's anything you'd like to add. Well, I'd like to point out that a lot of our fundamental calls are nicely supported by technical analysis, which isn't always the case. Notably, our technical analysts agree that, number one, the dollar will weaken further. Number two, we will see lower bond yields. And number three, growth stocks should continue to outperform. And anything from you, Christian? 
Yes, indeed, Bernadette. Uh, there's uh, plenty of investment opportunities, and this uh, seems somewhat counterintuitive. If you look at the news flow and you know what you're bothered with uh, when you're checking uh, the media, but in fact, you know, given where rates and yields are, we think it's an extremely interesting and uh, most rewarding environment. And the problem, the pitfall there is, of course, in order to benefit from these opportunities, uh, investors have to act before the market's reprice. Wise words there to end on. Christian and Kelly, thank you both so much for your input today and for sharing your thoughts on the market outlook for mid-year 2023. I'm sure we'll all look forward to catching up with you later in the year for more insights. And that concludes this edition of Beyond Markets. Thank you all for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation and that you'll join us again soon. Goodbye for now. Get ready for the day ahead. Moving Markets is a daily market news briefing from Julius Baer's leading experts. You'll hear all about the latest ups and downs across asset classes, the underlying drivers, and our thoughts on where markets are heading. Search for Moving Markets on your favourite podcast player. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favourite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Bayer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbayer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com slash legal slash podcast for further important legal information.